0: 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'll be reading beginning verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, and has turned and gone down, gone on down to Gilgal. Then uh, Samuel reached him. I'm oh, sorry. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, "The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions." But Samuel said, "What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear?" Saul answered, "The "'Soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. "'They spared the best of the sheep and cattle "'to sacrifice to the Lord your God, "'but we totally destroyed the rest. "'Stop,' Samuel said to Saul. "'Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. "'Tell me,' Saul replied. "'Samuel said, "'Although you were once small in your own eyes, "'did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? "'The Lord anointed you king over Israel.' And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination— and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And this is God's word. Now, we have a new series here. Uh, Every year after Easter, we start to move into how the gospel shapes character. And in other ways, we talk about... Um, uh, how uh, when you apply the gospel, when you take the gospel in, how that transforms you individually and uh, the church as a body. Now, throughout the season of the pandemic, uh, Metro has experienced a lot of growth. We've been talking about this uh, because it's, it's astounding. It's remarkable uh, how much we've grown in numbers. But uh, I want to focus not on how many people Metro has been growing with, but more on how well we've been growing And there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, the pandemic uh, and there's been just people just suffering a lot, a lot of darkness, um, and just a lot of anxiety, depression. We've been talking about how mental health issues are going to skyrocket probably over the course of the next two two to three years from people that we wouldn't even expect to have any type of condition. We're going to see a lot of just social uh, issues, uh, many problems, and all kind of uh, uh, converging here in the church. Now... What I'm emphasizing here is that, yes, it's important to multiply. Yes, it's important to continue to plan churches. Yes, it's important to grow in quantity, but not without the quality. It's not all about new gifts and capabilities, but more about character. And so we're entering into what we call, at least the the series is called a season of change. I debated talking about season of repentance, but then people don't really know what repentance is and what it encapsulates. A season of transformation, but that seems so dramatic, we're in a season as a church, where there are lots of changes going on in each individual. There are, and nobody here has stayed the same. I mean, that's just how time is. Nobody stays the same. We're all constantly undergoing change, and that means as individuals, if we're all changing, then as a church, we're all changing and evolving as well. And so we need to reflect, reflect on our growth process. Through this remarkable year where everyone has been forced to pivot in a lot of ways. Now, this is a passage about Saul. King Saul, the first king of Israel. He was a people's choice. Uh, He's attractive. He's a religious man. A natural leader who comes from a good family. Well trained and educated. Demonstrates humility. Demonstrates even mercy. Wisdom at first. Sounds like a great leader, sounds like a person that we would want, sounds like uh, great qualities in a leader, what you would normally look for, but then all of a sudden, after, uh, pretty quickly, life starts to spiral into ruin, and Saul becomes jealous and outwardly envious and arrogant and murderous because of his pride. He became blind to the warning signs that he failed to see or intentionally did not see about himself. Now, we're going to look at four things. Four things. One, the deafness of pride. Two, the blindness of pride. Three, the root cause of pride. And lastly, the healing of our pride. The deafness, the blindness, the root cause, and the healing of our pride. First, we're going to look at the deafness of pride. Verse 18. Uh, which is pretty much uh, as we kind of get into the last movement of this text, it gives us context. Very simply, Samuel reiterates to Saul what he was supposed to do. The Amalekites were a neighboring enemy tribe, They were an extremely violent people, an extremely greedy people. And so God really goes to Saul, who is the king of Israel, and he says, as an act of justice, as a decisive act of justice, I want you to engage in battle with these people, make war on them, defeat them. And when you do, don't leave a single trace of a single person alive, not a single animal to be left alive. Destroy everything among the Amalekites. What does Saul do instead? Saul instead keeps the best of the livestock and he takes the king of the Amalekites as his prisoner. Now, think about this. Israel, Ancient Israel is an agrarian culture. That means that the more land you have, the more power you have. And if you capture the highest person in that enemy land, if you capture the enemy king, now you became a king of kings. And so Saul, who was called to destroy the violent and greedy... Representing God's justice, he himself becomes a violent and greedy and unjust. And so God says, I'm going to reject him. I reject him as king. Verse 19, Samuel asks Saul, why did you not obey the instruction of the Lord? The actual Hebrew text is literally saying, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? Saul doesn't say, well it's because I disagreed and I'm the king and I get to kind of, that would have been honest, right? Or um, I tried to convince God otherwise, but he wouldn't listen to me. Or, you know, I thought I misunderstood. I misheard. Rather, Saul says, I did listen, but I did obey. He completely dismisses the truth about himself. He says, I did listen, but you see, I'm taking this, and I'm going to sacrifice it. So it's all going to get destroyed. And Samuel says, I told you, the Lord told you to destroy everything. And you say you listened. And maybe you did hear, but it certainly didn't go in. Not deep enough. You didn't let it change you. You didn't let it shape what you wanted. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord is more important than sacrificing. In other words, you haven't truly listened until you applied what you heard. You haven't truly listened unless that has shaped you. Now, this is very big because I know a lot of people in our church, they talk about working out the gospel. It's one of the most annoying phrases, uh, just a pet peeve of me myself as a pastor, right? I'm working it out, but I'm telling you here, then you are not too distant from Saul, Saul was working it out. Saul applied what he worked out. You see, Saul heard, but he didn't really listen. And he didn't really apply. He didn't really, it didn't lead to a deep shaping obedience to the Lord. What I'm saying here is that it's possible that on one level, you really are working it out. On one level, you really can hear. But at a deeper level, you're missing it altogether. In fact, the text here is gonna show you that you're not just missing it as if it kind of zoomed by you, you're actually dismissing it. You're actually letting it go. And so with pride, there's a hearing that doesn't lead to a listening. There's a deafness, a spiritual deafness. And because you did listen on one level, It's very possible, like Saul, to be able to say, but I'm listening, but I'm obeying, but there's this disconnect between what you say you're hearing and how it's actually shaping your life. Pride deafens you to the truth, to the truth about yourself, to the truth about your view and your perspective on life, what's really important, what's really real, There's a type of uh, self-deception that numbs you to all the warning signs that God calls you. He calls you to remember who God is. He calls you to a life lived uh, in accordance with that call because deep in our pride, deep inside, deep in our pride, there's an inherent distrust in God. See, God calls you to abandon that distrust, which is very natural. It's very natural to, to distrust God and trust yourself. And God is calling you to remember who he is. Remember what you, the life that you're called to live. And remember the call to dismiss any type of inherent distrust you have in God. And so, but we don't do that. And so we stop hearing God. Why? Because of what we desire. Because of what life out there promises. And instead, as a result, we stop hearing God and what what he desires of you, what he promises for you. Now Saul's thinking, wait, you want me to give up all the animals? You want me to give up all the wealth, all the plunder? You want me to give up all the people? I mean, people make the economy. The wealth, the plunder will increase our economy. The animals and the livestock will increase our economy. Why would God withhold all these good things from us? And we jump to the conclusion, well, then he must not be good. He must not be for us. That's Adam and Eve. That's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You see, when the Bible, the Bible says that when Satan tempted Eve, she looked at this fruit that God had told her not to take from, not to eat from, and the fruit looked pleasing to the eye and useful. And she's thinking, This is a good thing. This is pleasing. This is useful. Why would God withhold this good thing from me? At the root of all of our acts of sin. You see, sin is more than just an act. It begins with an inherent distrust in God that he is for you and that he knows what's best for you. And so you tune him out. There's a deafness in sin. There's a deafness in pride. Secondly, there's a blindness our sin, our pride, it doesn't just make us deaf, we don't just stop hearing him, it actually makes us blind, here's how I'm going to give you a couple examples, one we become blind to our own conscience, right, we close our eyes, we shut our eyes, we turn away from our own conscience, verse 13, Samuel comes to see Saul and he says when Samuel reached him Saul said, I obeyed Samuel, in other words, I just want you to know Sam I carried out the Lord's instructions what's happening here? I mean, they just re- literally just connected. And in, the, in that instance, Saul immediately tries to convince Samuel that he has been obedient. His conscience is acting up. It's because he knows deep inside he didn't listen. But he's not going to stop. He's already far gone. He's gone blind. He's turned, his, he's turned a blind eye to his conscience. And instead of coming clean, now he's just trying to come out clean. It's very, very important. I'm going to share with you a few examples. One, um, a lot of people in the church say, I believe. I'm a believer. But then when you look at what really shapes their life decisions, it's usually money, their wealth, their status, their power, or their desire for a relationship. And so they tend to date people who most likely or sometimes do not believe We see a great kind of trend inside the church now where people in the church who who are professed believers are starting to date people who are actually outside of the church or not truly professed believers. And your friends, your friends, the ones at least who are spiritually astute, they want to talk to you. They want to grab you and sit you down and talk you through this. But what happens? You make it very difficult for your friends to actually get in. You you make it very difficult for your friends to actually have these very hard conversations with you. You avoid them, you evade them, you become defensive. You kind of set boundaries that are stated or unstated that make it very difficult for people to cross the bridge to actually make their way over to you to have these very important, necessary, but uh, crucial, but at the same time difficult conversations. And all the more, then what you do is you spend tremendous amounts of energy trying to prove that the decisions that you're making are right or that they're good when you should be spending that energy... Seeking what is true and what is good, and all the more, what happens is, when something blows up, what do you end up saying? I knew, I knew all along. Yeah, I knew. Your friends are like, you—you you had to have known. Yep, I knew. That's what I mean. after everything blows up. Now, the second example I heard from Tim Keller—it's—it's—it's it's, it's always good, too good to, too good to not share. So I'm going to share this, um, and I shared it multiple times near the end of World War II. There's a town in Germany called Ordruf. I'm a huge World War II, uh, just, you know, I used to, growing up, um, you know, read a lot about, uh, you know, the Allies and the Axis, right? Um, The Allies liberated the concentration camp in Ordruf, um, but the German guards, to get rid of the evidence of what they were doing, they tried to incinerate, they had the task of incinerating 2,000 bodies, and they were caught. They were caught. They say that General uh, George Patton, he was nicknamed Blood and Guts, George Patton went in, looked at what they were doing, and they said he vomited on the spot. Now, Patton was so enraged, he heard the guards, he heard, that, he heard that these guards often go into town and they womanize and they drink and they brag about their exploits. So he's thinking the people must have known what's going on in there. And yet no one said anything. Of course, when he went to interview these people, the townspeople would say, "No, no, I had no idea what was going on there. They turned a blind eye to their own conscience. They were dismissing reality. What does Patton do? He said, I don't care if you knew or didn't know. I don't care if you're the mayor or his wife. Everyone here tomorrow morning, you're going to come out. You're going to help us dig graves and put these bodies in the graves. And they did it all day. All day they spent, the entire town, digging up graves to bury these bodies. That night, they went back. The mayor and his wife hung themselves, and they left a note. What did the note say? We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know. But we knew. Now think, if the modern era, the most scientifically, educationally, technologically, culturally advanced era in history, is capable of this kind of atrocity, then it can't be because we lack science or education or technology or culture. So why? And it's because we've turned away from our consciences and we're ignoring the truth, the reality about ourselves. Yes, we are that bad. Yes, it can be that bad. Yes, we are that capable. In verse 13, Saul says, I carried out the Lord's instruction. I listened to the voice of the Lord. Really? Samuel says in verse 14, Really? Then what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? This lowing of cattle. In other words, you listened? Because I'm listening and I hear sheep and I hear cattle. I hear these animals that are supposed to be dead. What does Saul say? Oh, those things. The soldiers brought them. In Hebrew, he doesn't actually even use the word soldiers. He alludes to them. He says they brought them. It's that, that word they when you don't want any traceability. And you also don't want any responsibility. Pride begins when you are blind to your own conscience. But then, too, it leads you to divert blame on others. Blame shifting. And as a result, you're turning a blind eye to your own sinfulness, your own self, your own pride. The things that are really ruining you, the things that are really working in you may start out as a small, small speck, a small tumor, but it can grow and completely consume you. Why do we do that? Because the easiest way to avoid looking at yourself is to focus on the fault of other people. Thirdly, Saul says in verse 21, okay, all right, I did keep the animals, but we're going to sacrifice those animals to the Lord. They're going to get destroyed anyway. It's appropriate. What is he doing? Rather than coming clean, he uses religion to come out clean. Rather than coming clean and saying, I didn't listen, I disobeyed. It was my desire. When I really look at myself, I just wanted this more than obeying God. I didn't trust God. Rather than saying that, Saul uses his goodness. Saul uses his good intentions as a way of coming out clean. But Samuel, it was all for God. Another way to put it is, our goodness, we would call that religiosity, for those of us who grew up in a church and who may not We have struggled with really having intimacy with God because we fail to really grasp the depths and the richness of what God affords in the gospel, his love and embrace for us in Jesus. Rather than relying on that, we're really taught, and we can't really blame the fact that we were taught this way, we chose to believe because it's natural to believe that if we just work hard, if we just do good, then in a sense, God kind of owes us. And so our good intentions and our goodness is often used as collateral to earn the favor of others or maybe even to get away with things. It was all for God, Samuel. Our goodness, our religiosity is too often confused, oftentimes disguised as faith. And so it becomes used as a way of justifying ourselves. We become blind to our pride, blind to our error, blind to our sin. Uh, a symptom of that is you're, you're unable to really uh, admit sin. You're unable to, desi- you just don't desire to look deeper into the sin. A lot of times you're confronted with people who say, hey, I'm going to think about this. I'm just going to go home and I'll think about this. But you don't really think about it because the whole point is you want to avoid thinking about it. You don't want to accept the reality, the possibility nor the reality that you can be that bad. You can be that capable of sin. Nobody wakes up and says, hmm, I think I'm going to murder six million people today. No one does that. Unless you come clean, unless you confess sin, unless you own that sin instead of blaming everybody else, unless you explore the depths of that sin, the roots of that sin, unless you desire to put an end to that sin because you hate that sin, pride will make you deaf, pride will make you blind, and then you become capable of any evil. What's the root cause? What is the depths? Why do we run from these hard truths Why do we run from the hard truths about ourselves? And the answer is where Samuel says to Saul in verse 17: Though you were once small in your own eyes, didn't God anoint you as king? Once you were small in your own eyes, but the Lord has made you great. Why did he say this? And the answer. Is in the beginning of the text in verse twelve when Samuel is looking for Saul, what does he do? He he walks, he's traveling, he goes down and he hears that Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor, and Samuel says, "Saul, you are small in your own eyes. God has made you great. Why the monuments? God has made you great. You're insecure." You're inadequate. You feel inadequate. God's call was not enough to make you feel qualified. It's why, basically, Samuel is asking Saul, why are you trying so hard to build up wealth and build up status, build up your stature, build that kingdom in a visible way? Why the monuments? To show people that you are great. You're still trying to make yourself great. To convince yourself that you are great. To look great in your own eyes. To convince yourself of who you are. For example, you know, what is at the root of covetousness? You know what covetousness is? Covetous, at, the, at the root of covetousness is a discontent. A discontent that causes you to desire something that someone else has Because you believe that if I have that thing, it will give me worth. Somebody else has the looks. Somebody else has the popularity. Somebody else has that lovability. Somebody else has the job. Somebody else has the the bank account. Somebody else has the the lifestyle. Somebody else has the, the family. Those are all monuments. Those are all monuments. The reason why Samuel says your arrogance is like evil idolatry, the evil of idolatry, in other words, what he's saying is it's all because you feel so small in your own eyes. It's your arrogance. And as a result, that arrogance, that pride, that mixed with that self-deception and self-delusion, it's like the evil of idolatry. And so you're constantly in need to build these monuments. Think about this. If God's love... If God himself, his person, a personal, intimate relationship with God is sufficient for you, if that's how you know you are accepted and loved, if that's how you know, regardless of what you look like, regardless of what you do, this is the value, your worth, your intrinsic value and worth, beyond the fact that you were created by God, that God loves you, embraces you, values you, honors you, delights in you as His child, if that is held up as your monument, then you can handle anything. You can endure any truth about yourself. You can say that is true. But thank God that that, won't, that does not undo God's love for me. Yes, that is true about me. But I'm going to start by thinking and knowing that that will not undo God's love for me. Then these people coming to you with critique are in some ways friends. As you validate it and you say, wow, this really is true about me. You can say, wow, I, could, I need to really... This is God sending these people to grow me, to mature me. But what if your monument, what if the monument in your own honor is your children? Then you're not going to be able to accept anything negative about your children. You're not going to be able to accept anything bad happening to your children. So they are sheltered and they are protected in an inordinate way. And they're not going to mature properly. And they will resent you in the end. You will lose them too. If the monument in your own honor is your job, then you will be defensive about your work. You will fight for your position. You will constantly want to build little monuments everywhere in your workplace. You will be afraid to leave your workplace if it is destroying you or ruining you. If your monument is your looks, any slight about how you look will destroy you, will make you resentful, will cause bitterness in your mouth. This is how you know something is a monument to your own honor. You can't accept the truth about it. You can't accept the truth about you in it. You can't accept the truth about your pursuit of it. You become deaf. And as you keep going on, and you become blind, and then you spiral. And you're capable of any evil. Saul heard, but he didn't really hear. God anointed you. He knew, but he didn't really know. God honors you. He knew on one level he was not gripped by that. He heard the words. He never danced to the music. And so he was blind and he was deaf. And look what happens. Everything he says, everything he thinks, it's to get away. It's to come, it's to come out clean. It's, to, it's, it's a result of a blind, blindness to his conscience, blame shifting, justifying himself. All the while he's building monuments. That's a lot of work. You're spending a lot of energy in things that are ultimately going to corrode your soul. Things that, are, that will not help. Ultimately, to demonstrate, even in even in a small way, your worth and value in eternity, it's just hard labor. And so Saul, even though he's a king, he's a slave. And so if the gospel is not your monument, if Jesus Christ held high, exalted is not your monument. Something else is going to be your monument. What is your monument? What is a monument? A monument is something that defines you. Think about this. If this monument gets made, it will make me. It will define me. But instead, what it's really going to do is going to de- deconstruct you. It's going to unmake you. It's going to undo you. It's going to twist your life into evil and ruin you. How do you address it? How can we be healed from this? Samuel says in verse 17 God has anointed you, God made you great. It didn't sink into Saul how much he was loved. And so Saul is working and striving to build his own monuments. But you and I, we have a resource, a much greater resource to know God's love for us. Saul had a Samuel to remind him. But you and I, we have so much more to remind us. Because centuries later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden, Jesus Christ is praying. What does he pray? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will will but yours be done. In other words, what he's saying is, Father, I'll obey. I'll obey. In the first garden, Adam and Eve, inherent distrust. Why would God withhold this good thing from me? Jesus Christ, facing death, says, not my will, yours be done. I'll obey. And he obeyed. He obeyed in full. To obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus Christ obeyed and sacrificed. Jesus Christ is our ultimate resource. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you're not pleased. I have come to do your will. You know what that means? Samuel says, God is not really what you want. God, because... When you go to God, you're going for things. God doesn't really want sacrifices and rituals as a payment for those things. He wants your obedience. He wants your will. He wants you to bend your knee. He is the king. He wants you. Jesus Christ says, I have come to do your will. I will obey. Now, how can a holy king become more holy Jesus didn't obey to become holy. The Hebrews writer says Jesus obeyed to make us holy. We are made righteous. We are made acceptable in union with Christ. That's why we're building monuments, anyways. We need approval. We need to be told that we're acceptable, that we're lovable. We crave honor, we crave glory, and we pay a tremendous price for that. When Jesus Christ died, there was the perfect obedience. His death delighted God, even at the cost of his relationship with God. The true king of kings, who had all glory, all power, all wealth, all status, Yet Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am not approved. I am rejected. I am dishonored. You no longer delight in me. I'm given up my power. I've given up my wealth. I've given up my status. I've descended to the depths. And so Jesus Christ takes on the full cup of God's wrath and he drank it all. He received everything we deserved. He sacrificed his life. And so when you believe in him, God delights in you. Jesus Christ was who is the greatest. emptied himself according to Philippians 2 emptied himself and became small so that we who are small in our own eyes be great in God's eyes. The gospel is the ultimate monument. Unbreakable Unshakable, can't destroy it. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. The cross is the one monument we need. The cross is the one monument you just, you just that's what you're really trying to build, but you can't build on your own. Coming to the cross and you see the high king emptying himself, becoming low for you, that will melt away your pride. That will give you the power to accept and know the real truth about yourself. That will give you the power to see your sin and come clean about your sin, to own your sin, to hate your sin. That's what it means to be free of sin, to be able to battle sin, Because Christ has overcome sin. To be able to know the real truth about God, that you are loved and honored, not because you obeyed, not because of your merit or your record, but because Jesus Christ obeyed, because of his merit and his record, your monument, oftentimes our monument is our work, but Jesus Christ, his cross, the gospel assures us, the work is done. It is finished, the debt is paid, the transaction is made It's the end of work. It's the end of striving. It doesn't mean we don't work anymore. It means you are free from what you're trying to make of that work for you. It's the end of working to make your name great. Forsake your monuments. Stop building like that. Stop slaving away to make your name great, or to make your name at all, or to prove yourself. Invest your energy to remember. Invest your energy in remembering that the only monument you need is the cross of Christ. The blood that he shed for you. That's repentance. It's vital. It's crucial. It's so important to end the corrosion and the evil in our souls. It's so important. It's vital to your intimacy with God. I know. It's hard. But it would be impossible without the gospel. And God gives us his spirit with power. Let's pray.